welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. So I was going to take at least a month break on special episodes, until I received an Instagram message from the Hidden Dream organization. I needed about three minutes scouring their exceptionally impressive website to know that I needed to talk to them. Hidden Dream is an organization founded and run by Visa Dreamers, a group that, as you'll hear, essentially includes children and young adults who came to the U.S. as temporary non-immigrant children with their non-immigrant parents, but who are now or will soon be potentially left without a viable path to remain in the U.S. as they age out and turn 21 years old. And here's the kicker. Hidden Dream is run entirely by volunteers, all of whom are either college students or recent college grads, and in some cases, even high school students, all stuck in this immigration gap. Links in the show notes, of course. Visa Dreamers are generally left out of the big immigration reform conversations, so I was happy to give them a platform and to learn a lot of things along the way. I hope you were as moved as I was by my April 12, 2022 conversation with two of the group's four founders, Sumana Kolavai and Harishri Karthik. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another special episode of Immigration Review. In this interview, I'm here with Harishri Karthik and Sumana Kolavai of the Hidden Dream Organization. And honestly, it's just a fascinating organization. So Harishri and Sumana, thanks for joining me tonight. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Kevin. So I want to jump right into it. But before we do, and before we even get into your backgrounds, I would note that Sumana, you're a recent college graduate and Harishri, you're in college as we speak, right? Correct. That's true. I graduated in 2019. And I'm still in school. I'm in grad school currently, and I plan on graduating in about a year. And what are your roles in the Hidden Dream organization? I am one of the co-founders, and I'm currently the executive director of the Hidden Dream. I am also one of the co-founders, and I am the media slash marketing director 
It really makes me a bit embarrassed for what I was doing in college, just to talk to both of you. Applause to you, but know that I'm kind of dying inside. No, I, I feel like it's it's just something we've done out of necessity. You know, oftentimes we talk about how we could just like do more chill stuff at our age. But um, yeah, very proud of the team. Super, super proud of them. No, it's amazing. And I guess what you're saying is it was kind of built out of necessity as well. And so we'll get to that in just one second. But so to start off, the Hidden Dream Organization, it's about Visa Dreamers, right? Correct. So what is a Visa Dreamer? A Visa Dreamer is uh, someone who entered the U.S. Um, during their childhood on a dependent visa. Most commonly, these dependent visas are H4, L2, E2, and a couple others as well. The issue faced by these dreamers is while they may have status, many of them do not have a realistic pathway to citizenship because of country caps, green card backlogs, and visa processing delays. So what happens is these dreamers age out of the immigration system and get separated from their family's immigration status at the age of 21, and then they kind of have to restart their immigration journey. Not only do they face a lot of uphill battles, on the journey to try and get citizenship. Uh, we also cannot work on these dependent visas. We can't apply for a majority of scholarships. We don't qualify for FAFSA. A lot of schools force us to pay out-of-state tuition. I personally couldn't even get a driver's license until I was 21. Um, so it, it's just like a lot of different issues that people don't talk about. And they assume that just because you have a visa that things are okay, but that's not true at all. A lot of our struggles are very similar to uh, undocumented students. And so to be clear, both you, Sumana, and you, Harishri, are what you would call visa dreamers, correct? Correct. So this is both very, so this is very personal to you both. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of summarize what you were saying there, the visa dreamers come on a dependent visa because one or both of your parents has the primary visa, non-immigrant temporary visa to come to the United States and you're a derivative on their visa. And while you're a derivative under the age of 21, you can remain in the United States. Correct. And a lot of people, the first question they have when they hear how long we've been in the States, they'll be like, isn't an H-1B like only for six years? Isn't it temporary? Like, how have you been here for so long? And the reason our families have been here is because once um, someone sponsors like the primary visa holder's green card, then you can just keep renewing the H-1B. But unfortunately, the child will get um, split from the family at the age of 21. And at the age of 21, the child can potentially get employment authorization, can potentially get a driver's license, like you said, but you also immediately become subject to removal unless you have an independent pathway to remain in the United States. Yes, that's true. And the most common option for um, these dreamers is to switch to a F1 visa, which um, I'm sure folks know is the typical international student visa. But the problem with that is there's a line item for the F1 that says that you must show intent to return to your country, like your home country, if you want an F1. And for folks like me and Harishree, 
an officer at the embassy is going to be like, this kid was in the U.S. their whole life. Why are they going to return to India, for example? Like, why should I give them this F1? So it's kind of like a catch-22. So that's why, like, a lot of immigration attorneys advise kids like us to not travel back home to get this visa. Instead, we do a change of status, which is expensive. Also, it cannot be, it's not guaranteed if our family can't afford funds for school. If we can't show that we can pay the funds, then the school won't file the visa for us. And at that point, we could lose status and become undocumented. Yeah. So just and to, to add on about the, to add on about the funds, um, you actually have to show that you have a year's worth of uh, not only tuition, but all other expenses in your bank account to, you know, as proof that you're able to support yourself. Um, and you can imagine that for international tuition, that is like a crazy amount and it can, it can be like, I'm just going to put like, uh, I don't know, like 50K out there, you know, but for state schools, it can be a little lower, but still like that is a really large amount of sum. And every time we um, switch from one degree program to another, we have to do this again, where we show funds. Um, And yeah, so, and even for financing, we obviously don't have scholarship opportunities Um, We don't have uh, FAFSA or state aid or federal aid. So we're, our parents end up having to pay out of pocket, but that's if they can, right? So if they can't, um, we're having to look into loan options, but the loan options that we have available are going to be, you know, restrictive and high interest rates. Or you need a citizen (laughs) co-signer. Yeah. For the non-immigration attorney listeners, why don't you guys just get some green cards? (laughs) I wish it were that easy that we could just pop into a line and do it on our own, but um, that's not the case. Um, It's a very, very convoluted process. Either someone from your family has to sponsor you or an employer. You can't just sponsor yourself um, to get a green card or I don't know, maybe there's like a very niche way to do that, but that's not what the normal person can do. Um, And in our case, we fall into the employment-based categories. And um, for certain countries, India, China, Mexico, and the Philippines, it takes decades to get that green card um, because of the 7% country caps over the total. I keep saying country caps. And the reason I want to like drive that point home is just to show how absurd that like concept is. So there are about 140,000 green cards that are given out each year. And a max of 7% of that 140K can go to any one country. So a country like India can get a max of 10K green cards. But just from India, like I think last year, over 150,000 people um, filed for a green card. So imagine trying to clear one year's worth of applications with that country cap. It's going to take you 10 years of backlog to get through just like 2021. So that's why we can't just get a green card. (laughs) Sumana, um, you you shared with me before we started recording that you're about to go to UC Hastings Law School. So congratulations on that. It's a great law school and it's a great path. Sounds like you need to be an immigration attorney. Uh, Yeah, that's the plan as of right now to go into immigration law. I'll be honest, I'm a little worried about my mental health if I do immigration law, just because it's like so close to home. And I feel like I would get very attached to the work I'm doing. But at the same time, it's extremely interesting and fulfilling to me. So uh, don't be surprised if I ask you to come back on here in a couple of years <laughs> as an immigration <laughs> attorney. 
Yeah, no, your your mental health worries are completely valid for a litany of reasons. I don't think that there's a listener right now who doesn't have them, but we all love being immigration attorneys. Even if you don't become an immigration attorney, you're already helping so many people. Next dumb question, why don't you guys have DACA? Okay, there is one of the requirements for DACA is to show that you did not have status for a certain amount of time. And we obviously can't show that. And that is the requirement that's holding us back from being able to apply to DACA. And the interesting thing to add on to what Hayashi said, it was this stipulation of not having status on a certain date back in 2012, that was not intended to be a part of the DACA program. It was um, an interpretation that was tacked on by DHS and USCIS. It was not part of the original um, memo that said implement DACA from the executive order. So that whole date thing is kind of arbitrary, arbitrarily decided. So last year when they opened up public comment for um, uh, new rules surrounding DACA, we actually, I was able to work with another nonprofit called Immigrants Rising to submit my story as public comment and encourage DHS to reconsider and expand the program to um, folks who had status on that certain day, and even folks who have status right now to qualify for DACA if they meet all of the other requirements. And we're yet to hear back, even though they said they'd tell us in 45 days. So, Samana, so did I mention that you should probably be an immigration attorney? <laughs> I'm not sure if I said that yet. That's no, incredible stuff. And you know, DACA wasn't even supposed to exist, right? It was supposed to be the DREAM Act, <laughs> it was supposed yeah. to be congressional legislation. You're going to catch 22. You were here legally, and so you can't get DACA, this very humane program that doesn't necessarily go far enough and that has its own issues, but you don't even qualify because you were in too good of a position to get Mm -hmm. it, but now you're in a worse position. Mm -hmm. So you're not dreamers, you're visa dreamers. And you have this organization, the Hidden Dream Organization. What is it and what does it do? Before we talk about what the Hidden Dream does, just to kind of add more color to the term visa dreamer it's hard because we don't want to be seen as co-opting language from the undocumented community by stealing the phrase dreamer and then also we do acknowledge there are a lot of issues with the term dreamer itself but unfortunately when it comes to trying to build momentum around a community sometimes you have to pick a term that's known by the public or known by politicians Some politicians call us legal dreamers. Other politicians call us documented dreamers. Um, There's childhood visa arrival, dependent visa student. There's a bunch, but we think there are pros and cons to everything. And that's kind of why we think visa dreamer is the most friendly combination of both worlds, which identifies who we are, describes us, also pays homage to the dreamer movement and has some sort of recognition and doesn't sound as aggressive or negative as legal dreamer because we're not trying to pit one group of kids against the other. We're just asking for all children who grew up here to be treated fair. And that's something I learned from my past work in the undocumented community. And I learned a lot from folks in that movement. I think that it would be good if we just called everybody humans, but I know that we have to have terms for everything. And so you are both leaders of the Hidden Dream Organization. Sumana, you're a founder. What does the Hidden Dream Organization do and how does it relate to all of the things that we've been talking about? 
So the Hidden Dream um, started off first as a Facebook group. After I graduated from UCLA in 2019, I saw that there was a severe lack of information and resources for kids like me. So I just made a group and shared kind of the different tips and tricks I learned navigating my time at UCLA. But then a year later, my story was featured on Humans of New York. And that's when I connected with hundreds of other kids like me and met Harishree and um, a handful of others. And we all co-founded The Hidden Dream and changed the Facebook group into a proper organization. And our goal is pretty simple. We are trying to build a community and then develop resources to help visa immigrants. Any problem that someone on these dependent visa has, we want to build a parallel resource and our first big resource was our scholarship. And then we just tackled each problem that these children have one by one and then built out a resource to help them. And I can dive into the resources later, too, if we want. I want to add on about the community aspect that we really value. Most of us thought that we were the only ones facing this issue because even when we shared it with our friends or family, most of them, you know, either didn't age out and, you know, got their green cards so they don't understand this issue or they're citizens and they completely have no clue about, you know, why we're in this situation. So I personally thought I was alone in this situation until I found uh, Sumana and others. And um, the others on the team and in our community also feel that way. And having this community to like talk to uh, about the struggles that we face together and have a support system that has really helped all of us. Our community is um, is over 700, I believe, at the moment. I really would like you both to get into the specifics of what the Hidden Dream organization is doing, because quite frankly, I think it's remarkable. And I looked at your board online, and there's about, what, 20 of you, most of which are either currently an undergrad or just graduated, like you, Samana, and about to go to grad school. And then there's a couple of high schoolers, even. And so you, this is a young adults, not adults, taking this burden for an entire community. What are you guys doing? Well, please go into all of the things that the Hidden Dream Organization is doing in its two years of existence. Yes, we are completely uh, student or recent grad run. And by student, um, we have a handful of high schoolers as well. Everyone's volunteering. No one's paid. And um, in the two years that we've been officially like a nonprofit, we have raised over $15,000 for scholarships for kids in this situation because a lot of us can't apply to external scholarships. So we said, we'll create our own. It's really hard for folks to find jobs because we get a work permit really late in the game. So we have our own uh, job referral network where people can sign up and offer referrals. We created a 30-page guide that walks uh, students through all the major questions they may have when they're on this status. Uh, We actually relaunched the guide today with a new design and updated information, and it looks so good. And I think one of the biggest things we focus on is mental health. We have a partnership with a company called BetterHelp, and we were able to send 50 kids to therapy for free. We have our own um, peer-led support groups, and we're going to be launching additional clinician-led support groups. And we have a couple different mentorship programs, scholarship lists. Uh, Yeah, I think that covers it. I might have missed stuff, but it's all on our website. Oh, yeah, our workshops. 
Our workshops are uh, honestly one of my favorite things to do. We bring in speakers from the community or outside of the community and we cover different topics. Uh, recently, we had workshops on how to go to law school, how to go to medical school. And um, we have like around 30 people that join and then they'll ask the speaker questions and we'll create guides from those as well. It's just incredible. And we'll have links to all of this in the show notes, including your 30 page survival guide, which I can't wait to read myself. And I commend you so much for what you're doing. But just to be very clear, if individuals like yourselves age out, get to be 21 years old, and you don't get a job, you don't get something that qualifies you for OPT or STEM OPT, you don't get into a university, you don't yourself get sponsored, you don't yourself, you're not yourself able to change status to some other visa, you become removable after having lived in this country for your entire life, essentially, correct? Correct. So the stakes are high. Everybody feels that burden to get into a good school, to get a job, to do all those things. But for you guys, it is life and death almost, or certainly life and a life that you know nothing about back in the country you were born in. I think it's important to remember. And I I, I guess I say that because I'm also curious, just to paint a bigger picture, you talked about your organization paying for and sending 50 we call them kids, but I mean, I guess a lot of these are young adults, to therapy. What kind of psychological issues are present in the Visa Dreamer group that the two of you represent? I think the biggest one is loss control, because sometimes it feels like no matter how hard you work or no matter what you do, um, at the end of the day, you're going to, you know, what if I don't get that internship? It's much harder for me to get it. And even if I do get that internship, what if I don't get picked in the visa lottery? It's literally a lottery. I'm playing with chance. Basically, that really can be debilitating when you think about it that way. Backing on the loss of control issue, something that we often hear from uh, the kids or young adults that we serve is every decision they make, they have to consider its cascading effects on immigration and how it's going to affect them being united with their family, their shot at their dream career, et cetera, et cetera. And like when every decision you have to take feels so large, the pressure is really, really intense. And that's why we often see a lot of um, requests for mental health resources, not just from the students that we work with. We've also noticed a lot of requests from the parents because they're also going through a lot and they feel really guilty that they may have put their child through this when that was not their intention at all. Uh, So loss of control is a big one. Another big issue we see in the community and we get a lot of requests for is uh, there are families where there are two siblings and one of the siblings has reached 21 and either they weren't able to get a job or they didn't get picked in the H-1B lottery. So the older sibling has been, has had to self-deport and they left the country. So the younger sibling has seen that the system hasn't worked for one of them. And like the younger sibling is extremely anxious and worried about their future. And I've gotten a lot of like heartbreaking requests from parents in the recent weeks with that specific situation in particular um, to help the younger one get uh, therapy as soon as possible. You're getting dozens of requests from adult parents, middle-aged parents. You're a 22-year-old, soon-to-be law student, volunteering on an organization you started to help this community. Is that correct? 
Correct. Except I'm 24. Except you're 24. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. It's, I'm, it's incredible. I'm okay with being 22. <laughs> I'm 22. <laughs> yeah, her her issue is yeah. like, I don't know, that, that was me you were talking about. It's unbelievable. And obviously it's a podcast, so nobody can see either of you. But I really like to paint a picture of this whole issue. We've talked really about what's going on and, and how difficult it can be. But would you be willing to share your personal stories? Maybe we could start with you, Samana. You could tell us about your personal story, how you got to this point, and what you hope personally for the future. Of course. Uh, so I moved to the U.S. when I was two years old. My father came the year before in an H-1B. My mom and I came um, a year later on dependent visas, H-4 visas. It wasn't until my senior year of high school that I realized a lot of doors would be closed because of my visa status. The first time it hit me was um, I kind of stuck behind my parents' back and went to a local ice cream shop to interview to be an uh, like an ice cream scooper for the summer. And then I got the job. I was super excited because I knew finances were tight and I wanted to help out. But when I took the employment paperwork back to my parents to ask them to help me to fill it out, they told me that um, I didn't have a social security number and um, a bunch of a bunch of other different things and that I didn't have a work permit and I couldn't take this job. And I was really confused because I felt like I was just like all my other peers. Why can't I do a simple job? So I let that one slide. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But then when I was applying for college, all of a sudden, my parents told me that I'm going to be an international student. I'm going to have to pay out-of-state tuition. I may not be able to apply for scholarships. And I was like, oh, my God, like, when does it end? And then I got into college. And then I realized I can't even do simple internships or compete with my peers. But worst of all, when I turn 21, I am going to have to self-deport. But a big turning point for me in college was I um, did a fellowship with the UCLA Labor Center, a Dream Summer Fellowship, and I got to meet 60 other undocumented students. And I finally felt like I was not alone. Like there are other kids who are going through the similar issues of not being able to work or not having access to higher education. And then after that program, I went to India to try and switch my visa to a independent visa. And I actually got flagged for administrative processing, which was super traumatic because basically they just handed me the slip at the embassy and said, don't contact us for 60 days. Was it pink? um, It was blue. It was blue. Okay. Both scary. Yeah. And I came out of the embassy and I didn't even know how to tell my grandparents what just happened. Um, I called my parents crying, telling them that like, I, I can't come back. It's the middle of the school year. I don't know what to do. But thankfully, like 15 days later, they sent me an email saying, we approved your case. You can come back. And after that, that's when a spark lit in me. And I was like, I have to be more vocal about this. This is just ridiculous. And since that point, I've been a lot more active in the visa immigrant community. I've had to deal with my dad being stuck out of the country for nine months, trying to bring him back um, and a bunch of other different stuff. But yeah, definitely been through a lot. And that's why I'm hoping to continue the fight in law school. I feel powerless when dealing with the consulates abroad because it really is a black hole. There are very limited, if almost non-existent ways to sue on behalf of individuals who are outside the United States, and certainly to sue for a direct result. I mean, sometimes you can sue if there's a substantial delay, and there are exceptions, but 
I feel powerless as an immigration attorney who does his best to know everything there is to know about the issue. As a non-citizen stuck out there who has been in this country their entire life, you are at the complete whims of a Department of State consulate officer who doesn't even have to explain why they denied your visa. You want to know what my like interview question was at the embassy? I would. It was one question. All he asked was, what's my major? I answered, and then he handed me the blue slip, and I was just shell-shocked. I'm like, what What just happened? Wow. Well, I'd say that you became more active in the Visa Dreamer community having co-founded this organization. How about you, Harishri? In a lot of ways, I had a similar journey. So I was brought to this country on a dependent visa um, when I was seven years old. Um, the only difference is I haven't gone back to India even till this day. Um, my parents were scared. Um, you know, people on H-1B visas can travel, but um, there were a lot of complications. Like initially they had financial strain and eventually when you hit the six-year mark on an H-1B, that's like a crucial moment. And, um, you know, they even had H-1B rejections. So there were a lot of reasons why they were scared to go back. And so I actually changed status to my F-1 visa when I aged out while remaining in um, the United States. So I'm so thankful that I didn't have to go through that interview process that Sumana went through. And I kind of like, I'm, I kind of only took the ser- issue seriously uh, a little later. My parents did tell me about these things at least a little bit when I was applying to college but I didn't face the reality just then because I was somehow I'm so grateful that when applying to uh, University of Texas, Dallas, being a Texas resident was enough for me. And, you know, I could get in-state tuition and I, I had, there weren't many differences between me and any other student until obviously I turned 21 and, you know, my 23rd birthday, my parents were like, okay, you can't put this off any longer. Um, and, you know, handed me the application to change my status. And filling that out is when I realized all the obstacles that I had to face. And, you know, instantly I had to talk to the bursar's office and say, hey, like, I've been a student. Why are you like suddenly planning to charge international su- tuition? Like, I've lived in Texas or in America for so long. And ever since then, and then I met um, someone and others and started the hidden dream. I feel like that was me aging out was the turning point where I went from knowing absolutely nothing about immigration to having to learn so much more. And I'm currently in a position where I'm also having to look into applying to the same visa my dad was on for all these years. And it's still on, still hasn't been able to apply for a green card. And to think that my wait time is going to be unimaginable, right? When I get to apply for an H-1B, I'll probably, I don't even know if I'll get one. You know, I don't even know if I'll get a green card waiting in that line. The line has become so long. Unless something is done about the system, right? The backlog and the country caps have a huge effect. And something that's so personal to me, and you talked about future plans, when you're a visa dreamer, you're concerned about your family and how what you do affects your family and your ability to stay with them. And something that happened to me recently is um, that eight months ago, my dad suffered a massive cardiac arrest all of a sudden, and he was hospitalized for two weeks and a week of which he was on full life support, fully sedated, you know, 
none of the doctors knew if he would wake up, if his heart would function, if he would, if he would have paralysis, if he'd have a stroke, if he'd even remember me. They had I I had, we had no clue of any of those things for a whole week. And during that wait time, I had to talk to my dad's employer. And I had to ask her to run paychecks because, so that, you know, when my dad had to apply for his H-1B extensions, it's not complicated and him having to explain why he didn't have a constant, you know, paycheck flowing. Because that's what happens when you're an H-1B worker. Your status and existence in America is tied to your job. And that also applies to my mom because my mom is still dependent on my dad's visa. And so... The what ifs of, you know, what if my dad is in a position where he can't work, you know, short term or long term, right? He loses his status. What happens to my family? It's kind of, it kind of makes me guilty that my dad, I don't, you know, my dad is fighting for survival, but I'm thinking about immigration. And he's also the only, the only source of income in my family. So, and he's paying my, you know, full tuition, no scholarship, international student, you know, all of that. Like, so you can see how so much depends on, depended on my dad's status. And I think that's when I was able to understand so much more than just the issues of like visa dreamer issues in the immigration system. There's so much more, there's so many more issues in the immigration system, like the backlog and I don't think there is an immigrant group that isn't facing an issue because the system is outdated. There hasn't been reform since the 1990s. There's a reason why the system isn't working efficiently. We need change and we need, we need something to happen. I really appreciate you guys sharing all of this. And there's so much more to talk about on it. But I guess I want to get a bit lighter because there, there was something when I was looking around your website, and that just impressed me so much. You know, over the last two years, I've been entering the social media space, promoting the podcast, creating things on Instagram, and all of that really just boring case law quotes. I get like eight likes every time I post something, and it makes me really excited. But you guys know exactly what you're doing. You have TikTok videos, and you guys know this is advocacy for the modern era is really what it seems to be for me. Can you guys talk a bit about that, how you're doing it, what your vision is, and how effective you think it's been? Uh, Sure. So TikTok has been awesome for us, and not just us. I know plenty of other organizations that have learned how to leverage that platform specifically. Uh, The algorithm is absolutely brilliant, and it's so simple for anyone to go viral and find your niche audience All you have to do is find trending audios and make quotations, jokes, or share stories on these trending audios that are related to immigration, in our case. And by following that simple formula of taking A, a trending sound, and B, discussing something that's related to your account, you almost have a guaranteed chance of going viral every time or every other time. It's ridiculous how simple the algorithm is, yet how successful you can be on there. So yeah, if anyone's reading this and trying to get into TikTok, give it a shot. Like just keep making content. The more active you are, don't let like low views or low likes like discourage you at any point. Eventually, all you need is one or two videos to click and then you have a constant stream of people who find you. That's honestly one of the number one ways people like 
come to us. They're like, I saw your TikTok. And we're like, great. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, I'm interested in it. But like with what I do on the podcast, I just can't imagine finding a video that I can use to explain how Justice Alito doesn't believe that non-citizens who just cross the border have habeas corpus rights. I don't even know what to do with that. You help me. Please help me. I promise it's not too niche. You should um, look up like different lawyer accounts. And then some of them just make the craziest videos about the most niche things. And they go viral because it's just really captivating. And I think the biggest value add that TikTok has over other social media platforms is you learn stuff in a very engaging manner with like visual simulation, visual stimulation and audio stimulation. People are being fed information that they want to learn about through the algorithm catered to them. That's why it doesn't matter how niche it is. As long as you're teaching people something, you're bound to find folks that want to learn about that. If you can send me 10 videos <laughs> that you think that I can use to better explain Justice Gorsuch's well-written opinion in his Chavez, I'm here for it. I'd be forever grateful. Bring me into the younger millennial world. Are you even younger millennials? What are you guys? I think I'm the last year, like I'm the oldest Gen Z person can be. The oldest Gen Z? What? What's under that? Well, so like, Gen Z starts, I think, 1996 or 1997. And then after that is Gen Y. Oh, my God. Gen X, something like that. Wait, I just looked it up. It says okay. between 1990, born between 1990 and early 2010s. That's born between is a what? 1990s and what is, 2010s. And what is that? Gen Z. A younger millennial is somebody born until at least 94. No, this is horrible. You may be correct because another website is saying millennial is between 1981 and 1996. Everyone is a millennial. You're millennials. <laughs> My wife's little sister's a millennial. Kids being born right now. We're all millennials. There's nothing else. Interview concluded. Thank you. Very I much. heard another term called zennial, I think, a mix between Gen Z and millennial. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to. This is not going in the show notes. This is terrible. It's no, it's really cool what you guys are doing with TikTok and other things too. It's 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 the future. It's really engaging and going viral is everything. People poo-poo on it and you know, people roll their eyes about TikTok and stuff, but if you've got thousands of views on your issue, job succeeded. Absolutely. I think our initial initial um or initial platform we started on was Instagram. And that's the one that I have like most experience and I don't do TikToks. I can't, I I'm like you, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared to touch it. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine, uh, but I mainly work with Instagram and that is the org that, uh, that is a platform we initially started on and still have like, we still have, that's still the most followers we have, right? Simona? Yes. But the content is a little different because there are a lot of like, we start off with a lot of informational posts and um stories sharing our stories and um raising an awareness i feel like that's what we mostly did on instagram but something that helped us is obviously we found you through instagram (laughs) um and we found um other organizations and um it's easy to build relationships with other immigrant groups and other organizations that way 
Ellie, if you're listening, we're getting Ira Kerr's band on TikTok. We're making an Ira TikTok. We'll talk after. Before we go, there are a lot of immigration attorney listeners on the podcast. How can immigration attorneys get involved and help the Hidden Dream organization? There are a few things that I would definitely recommend that immigration attorneys consider. First, if your firm specializes in employment-based cases and you're working with H-1B families, um, definitely tell your clients and their children that there's a support community that exists for them out there because chances are they're too scared to talk about this. Their child might feel very much alone in this journey. So a simple sharing of who we are and our resources would not only help the communities and like your clients, but I also think it would help build um, stronger relationships between attorneys and clients by sharing these um, support and resources. The other thing was this firm reached out to us and then they said that a lot of law firms have um, scholarships for communities, like their local communities. If you're an immigration attorney, consider giving back to this um, underprivileged community by starting a scholarship for dreamers in your area or um, any of your clients. That's one way to get involved. And then I know we'll talk about this more. Uh, if you have the opportunity to talk to local congressmen, um, share your experience as an attorney dealing with these clients and then seeing backlogs and just the amount of stress you've seen on them. The more people that talk about this issue, that's the only way we'll progress towards change. So sharing resources, maybe starting a scholarship if you have the funds, and then also making sure you raise your voice with change makers. What are your biggest hopes for legislation on Capitol Hill as it affects? Visa Dreamers. There are two bills that uh, we encourage everyone to um, support, specifically when it comes to the case of children. Uh, the first bill is HR six, America's Dream and Promise Act. The House version of the bill protects uh, kids on dependent visas. So if um, you have the opportunity to um, share support for legislation. HR6 is awesome. And then also another bill that has been specifically introduced for kids like Harishri and myself to have a pathway to citizenship is America's Children's Act. Definitely encourage folks to um, raise their voice and show support for that legislation as well. Now, we acknowledge that these two bills don't really help like our parents or um, the extending part of the visa immigrant community. But yeah, there's also the Eagle Act, Relief Act, a bunch of other options. But HR6 and America's Children Act are pretty helpful for visa dreamers. What would you say to politicians or other individuals who oppose the path to legal status for visa dreamers and individuals like you? just that I'm already American and there should be no reason why I'm, there's no difference between me and my citizen peers in terms of mentality. And I can't think of anything, honestly, there. And even when I share my story, um, everyone else is always very surprised of why are you not a citizen yet? <laughs> like, I thought you were a citizen. <laughs> That's what they tell me. I think that is my biggest reply. What I get, the sense I get from politicians is as soon as you hear immigrants, the term immigrants, they immediately put all of us in kind of like a separate box. And, and they have preconceived notions as to like what different types of immigrants are and, you know, what they're trying to do. So they put undocumented immigrants in a box. They put 
H-1B visa workers in a box and they put refugees and asylum seekers in a box. So there's like different boxes and they separate all of us and they choose who to support basically. And I, I don't think that is healthy. What I notice is that a lot of the immigrant groups are actually facing the same issues or similar issues. Um, we're struggling with dealing with the system, dealing with visa extensions or obtaining a visa or, you know, work permits. We're, we're facing very similar issues. Dividing us is not a good way to look at it. In fact, we should be unified. All immigrants should be seen together. What about you, Samana? What would you tell politicians or other individuals in the United States who might balk at a path to lawful status or citizenship for visa dreamers and individuals like you? Usually what I say is most of the time, you don't even know I'm not a citizen. If you see me, if you hear me, if you work with me, if you are friends with me, your immediate assumption would have been that I am American and I'm a citizen. So when I reveal I am not, I hope you carry on that belief that I'm an American and would support legislation to give me a shot at not only feeling American, but being American on paper. I feel like there's a lot of stigma with all the discussions or media portrayals of immigrants, but at its essence, everyone is just fighting for a shot at a better future. And if you believe that everyone should have an equal shot, a level playing field at a chance at whatever the American dream may be, then it is only right to support a pathway to citizenship for all. Very well put. I'm very impressed with both of you, and I'm very happy that you guys reached out to me. This has been one of my favorite interviews. No offense to my partners, who I also had on the show. I really appreciate you both coming on. Is there anything either of you would like to say before we go? Just a big thank you for giving us the opportunity to share our stories. Uh, You're the first, like, immigration attorney podcast that we've done, and we were super nervous because we know a lot of people in the industry. are going to be listening to us. So thank you for your patience. I think you did great. I'll reach out to some of my other nerdy immigration podcasters, and maybe you'll have a second one soon. Thank you for sharing your stories. Harishri Karthik and Sumana Kulavai, thank you for coming on the Immigration Review Podcast. And I hope to speak with you soon, and I can't wait for everything that the future holds for each of you. Have a great night. So there you have it. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, Feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview, 
That's IMM Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.